Do you remember the panic of New Year's Eve on 1999 that was coming? Do you remember Y2K? Remember that? Remember the whole world was in a panic. It was a global panic back then. We didn't think that the computers that ran our water and our electricity and everything could handle it. They would crash and burn because there were only two zeros to do the date. People were freaked out, hoarding up food for a whole year, just going back to, I mean, does this sound familiar? (laughs) And here we are, 21 years later, freaking out again over something else. But looking back on that Y2K in this global fear, what was the enemy back then? Time. Time was our enemy. As time just ticked out, can we control time? Can we stop time? Why would time be our enemy? God created time. And yet we were such in a panic about the calendar rolling over. Well, they did roll over. Went on to celebrate New Year's Day, 21 years later. What came out of that? New jobs and computer programming, that market zoomed, you know. Um, The economy started to blossom. Things were okay. We survived it. The only thing we can't seem to get a handle on is fear. And I think, I honestly think, this is my opinion, that being anxious is our new comfort level. I really think that people don't know how to be still, don't know how to be calm. Even with a nursing baby, it's like, what I got to do? I I used to love nursing my kids because people would leave me alone. (laughs) I'm nursing the baby. (laughs) Can't be there. And now, you know, you got these slings. You can nurse a baby and do a zillion things at the same time. But I I think being anxious or stressed out is the new norm. So, what's going to help us out here? Knowledge can help us out. If we know, if we knew ahead of time that the calendars would roll over and someone would invent four digits instead of two to calculate time, um, if we can kind of know ahead, that can give us a peace of mind. But then think about that for a minute. Does knowledge always bring us that? The unknown is, um, is scary. So, some of us when we don't know what is going to happen, we prepare for every single possible outcome that could happen, right? This could happen, or this, or if this happens, or if this, or if this happens, we got all of it covered, we think. Or we could have the other reaction is, well, I don't know, I have no idea, fear, and it's like we just become a victim of the circumstances then, when we don't know. But knowing and having information can bring us peace of mind. But if that information is too much or inaccurate, then we have another problem. I think that's what's going on today. We have too much information. We're in information overload. Things coming at us all the time. The the rate that books are published, no one's ever going to be able to read them at the rate that it's exponentially going. We're going to implode on us with information overload. And that information that comes out, sometimes it's inaccurate. It's a decision. You know, I've told you this before. I have, I am so fed up with Oreo cookies. I don't even buy them anymore. How many different kinds do they have now? There's new ones out there. There's another new one out there. 
The best one was last year when they came out unknown. Figure out what it is and write in. Do you remember that one? Oreos, once they did the double stuff, they should have retired it. That was it on Oreos. Too many, too many cereal aisles, too many things to go. Decision making. Okay, here. What's the best thing to do with some stuff? We'll talk about COVID for just one minute here or 30 seconds. Do we wear a mask? Do we don't wear a mask? Do we wear two masks? What kind of mask do we wear? Do we isolate? Do we do? What do we do? Too much. Who's telling us the truth? Where's all this stuff coming from? We just want to scream and pull out our hair because we don't know. So what is truth? What is true? How do we know what's true? I don't have a corner on the market. I, I think I might have a better understanding, but I can't even place, you know, things on that. The world informs us that truth today is relevant, that there's no absolutes, that this isn't standing there by itself, that it has its own mind. I can even get married to this if I wanted to. It's ridiculous, but I'm telling you, these are things that are going on. There's no, the world tells us there's no absolutes, there's no truth, right is wrong, Wrong is right, evil is good, good is evil, male is female, female is male, or whatever. But scripture, or God, tells us in James 2, 13, that there's two kinds of wisdoms in the world. Wisdom that is boastful and false, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, that kind of wisdom, false to the truth, is wisdom that comes from below, from down, is not from above. And scripture calls that earthly wisdom, unspiritual wisdom, demonic wisdom. So there's a wisdom out there that's demonic, okay, a knowledge base, and, and knowledge is what we do with, wisdom is what we do with the knowledge. And if our knowledge is, you know, called contaminated with flies and the wisdom that comes from that is demonic. In verse 16, it says, you know, there's jealousy and selfish ambitions and just every vile practice. But in verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Don't we want that? And gentle, open to reason. You ever try to reason with someone that's based their logic on lies? They just get mad and yell at you, right? Because it's, it's got holes in it. Full of mercy and good works, impartial and sincere. So in the book of James, it tells us that there's two kinds of wisdom or two different sources of that wisdom. One source of the wisdom is demonic from below, is man-made. The other source of wisdom is from above, is from God. The wisdom from God. That's peaceable. So God's knowledge, God's wisdom, will inform us on how to live the life that he created. And I touched base on that. It's in your little opening of your book. This is the book that tells us how to live life. It's the owner's manual that he wrote 
He's always present when we read it. Just like he was present and inspired the writers who wrote this, Luke wrote the book of Acts. God's Spirit will reveal and inspire us to be able to understand how to interpret it. Because if he went to all that work to write a book, don't you think he wants us to understand it too? That would be futile if he wrote something and then, oh, I don't care if you get it or not. No, the whole goal is for us to understand it. And it will never change. Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. That is peace of mind. So why Acts? Why are we studying Acts this year? Well, for one reason, that was the book that was available to us that kind of went along with the CBS breakdown, and we hadn't studied Acts. It is one of the, I think, three, five books that I have not ever taught, so I kind of wanted, I've never taught Acts, so let's look at Acts. But the real reason we're studying Acts this year is because God picked it. He picked it for such a time as this. Such a time as this. Because the times are drawing to a close. And he's in control. And he wants us to know what's going on. And he does not want us to be anxious. So such a time as this. I don't know about you guys, but... Well, I know this is true. We're closer to the end time than we were yesterday, right? (laughs) But it's getting, it, things are really, really heating up. And before Jesus comes again, because we know he's going to come again, the Bible also tells us that some things are going to happen. And we can look at Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 3, to find some of that stuff. Because they were all thinking in the early church that he was going to come right then in that generation, back 2,000 years ago. Well, he hasn't showed up yet. There are some things that need to happen first. So, Paul is talking to them, saying in 2 Corinthians, prior to Jesus' coming, that there's going to have to be a falling away from the truth. Now, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. What does that tell us? Don't be anxious. Okay? Don't be anxious. By the spirit or the spoken word or a letter, things were going on, like he's coming, he's not coming, blah, 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 blah. Verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So don't be deceived because something's got to happen first. The rebellion, King James calls it the falling away. The apostasy has to happen. Apostasy is a turning away from, an abandonment of the truth. Are we seeing the abandonment of the truth today? Hey, I'm a man. We see abandonment of truth today, right? These people are honestly believing this. There's a deception that's out there. So it's going to be a great falling away. Jesus even talked about it in Matthew 24, 10. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. We're not quite there yet, but we are seeing some lawlessness out there. We're seeing our court systems not kind of do what they need to do, and it's getting crazy. John even talks about it in 1 John 2.19, talking about fellowship and 
the institutional church, a gathering of believers. He says, some went out from us, some believers left, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So our churches are filled with people who aren't believers that are there pretending to believers or maybe think they're believers or whatever's going on with that. So we're also going to see a great, as things get really tough, a falling out from that, a falling away from the truth. I'm not going to study the Word of God anymore because I don't like what it says. Do we have that today? Well, you can just look on the Internet and find stuff happening today. One study... um, Well, if you want to know the resources, I'll tell you. 60% of young Christians believe some very anti-Christian things about salvation. This survey finds out. We're talking about born-again Christians, true believers, we'll say that, between the ages of 18 and 39. They believe that Jesus, uh, 60% of them believe Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad are all equal ways to salvation. The survey that they did reveals that there's basic ignorant belief on the fundamentals of Christianity in that age group. Here's a couple of their examples. The number of young adults ages 18 to 39 who are born-again Christians with a basic biblical worldview has dropped from almost 15% of the population to near 5%. We're losing these people. When Jesus... When asked if Jesus sinned like other people during his life on earth, 30% of born-again Protestants either agreed or weren't sure that he sinned. This is alarming. The number of born-again Christians supporting that belief increased by nearly 25%. So we're increasing in our deception and our disbelief and our falling away from the truth. Nearly 80% of young Uh, Christians are uncertain if Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. And one last one. The present number of adults under the age of 40 who chose atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular when asked about their position on faith or the association with the church is rising to nearly 50%. This is in America. Um, 3,000 Americans between that age... um, the Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview nationwide survey. Hollywood. Christian celebrities shares how Hollywood forces her to stop talking about Jesus. Look at the junk they're bringing out in Hollywood today. Oh, this was a recent one. Harvard. Harvard, a school where our founding fathers... um, you know, was it built on biblical truths? Harvard's new lead chaplain is an atheist. I know. We don't want to go into our higher education. It's appalling what's taught in higher education these days. So are we in this great falling away? I don't know. Look how many women are here today. This class used to be, you know, 100 and plus numbers. Look how many are here. Children's ministry down there? We need kids. We've got plenty of teachers down there. We've got about 13 kids. This is a generation we're losing. 
the word of God needs to be fed into them. Is the evangelical church defending the gospel? Even when we go to church, does it defend the gospel that Jesus is the only way? Well, there's some well-known pastors, theologians who say no. In the 90s, and this is back 30 years ago, in the 90s there was starting to happen publications by well-credited men of faith titled this, No Place for Truth or Whatever Happened to the Evangelical Theology, Power Religion, the Selling Out of the Evangelical Church, Ashamed of the Gospel when the Church Becomes Like the World, and then the Coming Evangelical Crisis. These are the books that they're putting out there. Montgomery Boyce says this, quote, Today's evangelical church, and evangelical is the presenting the news, the word of God, the gospel. Um, Today's evangelical church no longer understands the gospel it claims to uphold. And if it no longer understands the gospel, then it certainly no longer proclaims it to an unbelieving world. The message isn't going out as much as it used to. So these, a group of many of these evangelical theologians who are just aware of what's happening with the word of God today in, within Christianity has formed the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And this is, their, this is their mission statement. To call the church amidst our dying culture, to repent of its worldliness, to recover and confess the truth of God's word, as did the reformers, and to see that truth embodied in doctrine, worship, and life. You know how you know what the that college generation age group even thinks of marriage these days? They've got something called friends with benefits. Do you know what that is? We just have friends and we have sex with whoever. And that's an okay thing. And that's happening on our Christian campuses all over. I'm working with a young man right now, true believer, totally caught up in that. Now he's got an STD, and now he's realizing, oh, i got to get my life right with God. Okay, we'll, we'll work on that. We'll do that. But this is common in that generation. It's an apost- it is a beginning of the falling away. How much of it will fall away before Jesus comes, I don't know. But... We are going to study Acts this year, and we are going to study Acts this year because we are going to find out how the early church made it strong and made its way through a pagan culture, because that's what we are doing. We are, we are in a pagan culture, and it's in our Christian communities, too, and we are going to be more and more and more um, mocked, shunned upon, whatever. So we need to gather together. None of this Zoom junk going on. We need to be with each other to uphold each other and encourage each other. So the early church, Acts, is the the only biblical account record of the early church. It's actually called Acts of the Apostles, which means it's what the apostles did and how they did it. It's their actions, the actions of the apostles. Um, it had amazingly rapid growth. And if you look back, and we will, at the early church, starting this week, we're going to look at it. Um, humanly speaking, it had nothing going for it. It had no money. 
No one knew about it. It was totally wild ideas. Jesus had died and had ascended, and it's like, oh my gosh, the people that had lived during his lifetime there, what, what, what's going on here? What do you mean that's the only, what, what is going on? No history to fall back on, had no proven leaders, had no technology to, to advance the, the gospel, um, didn't have the internet, didn't have anything like that. It was only powered by God's spirit. And that's what's got to power us today is God's spirit. The book of Acts, it focuses mostly on the preaching and the teaching of the truths of the Bible. In the 28 chapters that are in it, there are 19 sermons or formal addresses. 19 places where it's teaching and preaching truth within those 28 verses chapters. So we, the church today, the real church of God, needs to get back to how the early church navigated through that time by teaching and preaching and studying the word of God and applying it. Because God is still in control. He is sovereign. I don't care if it looks like the world's falling apart. It is falling apart. You know what? But we should not be one little bit anxious about that. We shouldn't. We should have joy. We should have peace. We are a light of the world in a dark, 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 ever darkening place out there. So, let's take a look at this book, and then we'll let you go. The book. It records what the apostles did and where they did it. It primarily focuses on the activities of Peter and Paul. Some people um, believe that maybe a better title for this book would be Acts of the Holy Spirit because it it does talk a lot about what Peter and Paul did and some of the other guys. Um, But through it all, we're seeing miraculous things that that they did because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when Christ ascended, remember he wasn't going to allow us to, he wasn't going to give us his, the helper, our, our comfort and our guide until he ascended, then he would send the Holy Spirit. So this is a story pretty much of the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have the book of Acts that was written by Luke. Um, and Luke is the only non-Jewish writer of scripture. I mean, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but probably it was a Jewish person. But Luke is the only Gentile that wrote scriptures. So we have Luke writing Acts, and we have the Gospel of Luke. Those two books together are really one continuous narrative, and you'll see that when we start to study it. It's one continuous narrative that Luke is writing. And if you were to roll it out in a, in a scroll, each of those books would be like eight to ten yards long. It's a pretty big thing. So when they were putting the, the books together, divine inspiration, they divided the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and they divided it by sticking in there the Gospel of John, which is what we studied last year. It was written between A.D. 63 and 70. If we did not have Acts, it would be difficult for us to take all the epistles, all the letters that were written, that Paul had written, and and James and 
and stick them in. Because we have Acts, the timeline of Acts, we can know, oh, when, this is Thessalonians. This is when they wrote the letter to the, to the Thessalonians, and this is the Galatians, and, you know, we, can have, we have a timeline for it. It helps give us a foundation where to plug those, those books in. But it shows the expansion of Christianity from the beginning in the holy city of Jerusalem— after Jesus had ascended, that's where we find the, the, uh, the disciples of Christ. It moved from there to the capital city of the Gentiles, which was Rome, within the time span of 30 years. That's amazing, an amazing feat, utterly impossible because they didn't have the Internet. They had to tell it by word of mouth. And God chose Paul to take the truce to the Gentiles. And it wasn't a straight road from Jerusalem to Rome. It was, they meandered all over the place, and the Holy Spirit told them to go this way and to go that way, and, and all the obstacles that they had to go through. And, you know, Paul was, I bet you his physical, well, he had probably had arthritis like we wouldn't know about. But anyways, he kept carrying on. The impact of the truth through the Spirit of God is what moved it through. So we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit as we study Acts this year. Luke, who wrote it, was a companion of Paul. He was the the Gentile. This is an interesting thing. This one I've had a didn't realize. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than Paul wrote. If you take Luke and you take Acts and you add up the pages in the Bible of what they are, there's three more pages of that than if you add up all the things that Paul wrote. Because I always thought Paul wrote most of it. He's got all these little letters in there. But Luke did. A Gentile. (laughs) Um, Many believe that Luke was a doctor because of the medical terminology that they used and his knowledge of it and the compassion that he had for the sick and the poor. He writes it to Theophilus. Well, we don't know who Theophilus was, except he was a friend of Luke's. He's kind of unknown, okay? More important than that, he wrote it to us. The book is written to us. It's a count of our history. It's the beginning of our history as the church. And as we go through that and we see the exciting miracles, the, all the accounts that the Holy Spirit... I mean, it is mir- we have people walking through walls... We have earthquakes and things shattering open. I mean, <laughs> you know, people that should have been dead nine times over, and there they are again, you know, raising from the dead and healings. I mean, it's, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good read. But it's our history. And that same power that moved God's truth through that um, ancient world is the same power that's going to move the truth through his church today. It ends very, very abruptly. It's like, boom, it ends. There's no sign-off or anything. Many people, many scholars believe it did that because it's still being written in our lives. Still being written as we carry out the truth of God's word as the church. So I hope you're excited about it. And I hope you bring a friend. I hope you bring a friend with children. Because we are set up and we are ready to absorb children Um, We need to pour into them the word of God. So we are here as Bristol Community Bible Class. 
as a light in this church that has wonderfully opened the doors to us and have allowed us to be here, and we're very grateful. God, help us to help us to have a love for you and a love for your word. Help us to be bold and not back down in such a time as this, that you can be glorified. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.